0: Um, So, Jeremiah 31, starting from verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Uh, And now Titus, chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them as an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot, cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching of God uh, the teaching about God our savior attractive for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you.
1: Well, hello, Uni Church. Wonderful to be with you once again. Let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray that you might give us open hearts and open minds to you this evening. So that we might hear what you have written for us in this, your word. And we pray it especially as we continue to consider all that it means to be your church this year. And we ask it in Jesus' name and to his glory. Amen. I've been the senior pastor of... St. Matthew's now for five and a half years, and as I've shared before, when I first arrived in Shenton Park, I found it a very unusual suburb. First of all, Shenton Park has no pub. What sort of a suburb in Australia has no pub? And then I found out they sold the pub and turned it into a block of seniors' apartments, for crying out loud. Then uh, the second thing I realised uh, as I was learning what it meant to, to live here and uh, to serve you was that actually uh, the real kind of centre of community in Shen Park is the schools, particularly the school across the road, Roselee. and that's certainly been true now that we're very much part of that community with our kids. Uh, and, you know, schools, uh, they are centres of community. They're, they're very interesting institutions, schools. They're, they're academic institutions. They're primarily there to teach and to impart knowledge, to kind of pass on information. But a very strange thing occurs when you examine the mottos of different schools. Uh, So uh, Rosalie, again, across the road, their uh, motto is proud traditions shaping futures. That's a nice motto, isn't it? Or or then there's Shenton College, which some of you guys have have come from, more than marks, learning for life. It's a nice model as well. Perth Mod is kind of a bit more sinister. It's Knowledge is power. So I think that's where the that's where the supervillains get trained. I think that's how it works. Uh, My own high school uh, back in Sydney where I I grew up, our our motto was uh, manners make the man, which I agree with. I think it's a a very good motto, except I just don't remember detecting any manners in me or my classmates when I was there. But look, my absolute favourite school motto of all time comes from Carlingford High School where I used to be a pastor. Theirs is adventures in learning and then underneath is a picture of a Viking longboat with all these little men with horned helmets and battle axes lined up. You know, adventures in murdering and pillaging your way to educational success. You know, schools, they are, they're about academics. They're about passing on information. But actually, when you examine their mottos, they betray a kind of deeper understanding of what they do. They understand that actually they have a responsibility for forming the character of the children that are under their care. They understand that, you know, with knowledge comes a different way of viewing and understanding the world and therefore a different way of living in our world, a different way of of relating to others in our worlds. Our schools understand that knowledge leads to different living. Knowledge leads to different living. Now, what has that got to do with us today and Titus chapter 2 in particular? Well, uh, Titus actually teaches us that our schools have got it right. Our schools are bang on right when they say that knowledge leads to different living, especially when that knowledge is the knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ, or what we often call the gospel. And so come with me very quickly back to Titus chapter 1 verse 1. It's kind of one page back in your Bibles or one finger flick back in your phones or however it is you're reading God's word tonight. Titus 1, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. When you know the truth about Jesus, Paul says, it changes the way that you live. It leads to different living, a radically different way of living that he calls godliness, a transformed way of life. And so the big question is, how does this work? How does truth lead to godliness? How does the gospel actually change us? Now, this was a really important question for Titus, who was the one who received this letter that Paul had written. Uh, It was very important because the Apostle Paul, if you remember, he was the great missionary apostle. Uh, He was always wanting to take the truth about Jesus to, you know, the next city or the next province, the next people, and so he was always leaving behind him a, a fledgling young church that needed love and care and teaching. And so Paul was always leaving behind him one of his co-workers to do the, the loving and the caring and teaching. In this case, the fledgling church is, in, is on the island of Crete uh, and Titus is the one who's been left behind to lead them. Only he's been left with a really big job. Uh, he says in chapter 1 verse 5 that when Paul left, he'd left much unfinished And if you keep reading through the rest of chapter 1, which I advise you do, it's a wonderful little read, then it does appear that there's a lot of ungodliness in this new young church, a lot of immaturity, a lot of unhealthiness. And so how the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, how the gospel changes people, well, that's a vitally important thing for Titus to understand. But it's also a vitally important thing for us to understand as well. Now, I'm not wanting to suggest that our church here today, that we are as bad as the church in Crete. If you read the rest of chapter one, they were pretty bad. But more that actually we're still a church full of imperfect people. We know that we are still a church of broken people, of people who need the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. In fact, that's one of the entry requirements into God's church, acknowledging our very great need to be changed by him. And so we too need to know how the knowledge of the gospel does transform us, does change us, especially as we think about the year ahead as a church. But you know what? It's been a long, hot day. So let me just tell you where I'm going with all this. Let me be transparent with you, because really, if knowledge of the truth about Jesus leads to godliness, then the answer is fairly obvious, isn't it? We need to spend more time in the truth. And so what's the conclusion of this sermon going to be? Well, this is a sermon really all about encouraging you to come to church this year, to come to be part of church, to listen to the sermons, to sing the songs, to to learn the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And it's also a sermon about encouraging you to go to hub groups this year, to come along to that hub launch on the 28th of February, to come to those nights so that you can sit together with a a smaller group of Christians with God's Word open, reading together, praying together, walking along uh, each other side by side throughout all the storms of life so that you might learn the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And there's also a sermon about encouraging you to do that one-to-one, to uh, to read the Bible with each other, you know, to open it and to, to look at it together so that you might learn the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And this sermon is even an encouragement to start a regular habit of reading the Bible, perhaps even using some of the devotional material that we send out so that you might learn the truth that leads to godliness. That's what tonight is all about. So let me show you how we get there. Let me explain to you how the truth does lead to godliness. And there's three ways in particular that are up there on the the screen in the outline that you might like to take down if you'd like to take notes Three reasons: one, because of what the truth means from verses 11 to 14, uh, two because it is taught and not just taught, it's because it's modeled to us in verses one to 10, and then last of all, because of what it achieves in verse five and eight and 10. But first of all, then, the knowledge of the truth lead that leads to godliness. So how, how does it work? Well, it, the truth leads to godliness because of what the truth means. It's inherent in the message of the truth itself. You see, some truths don't change my life. Uh, Whether or not Pluto is a planet really has no bearing on the way that I live my life from day to day, especially when all right-thinking people know that Pluto is most definitely a planet. But there are some truths that do change the way I live. Whether or not a road is safe to cross when I'm walking my children to school, that's a vitally important piece of information that does radically change the way that I live. And the point that Paul is making here in verses 11 to 14 is that the gospel, the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, it's the latter, not the former. It's the kind of information that once we've understood it, once we have really heard it and and thought about it and taken it in, it must change us. It has to change us. We cannot remain unchanged once we've understood it. So come to verse 11, would you? Because here we get a really good summary of Paul's gospel. Uh, And we get both the past, the present, and the future of the Christian person. And it's the, the present in verse 12 that often gets overlooked. So let me start at verse 11 anyway. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It, that is the grace of God, Is a teacher, is an instructor, a coach. Uh, And of course, what what is grace? Well, grace is God's love for us, it's His unmerited favor. And we are saved, of course, by grace alone. We're saved only because God has chosen to save us out of His love. Salvation is 100% a work of God through Jesus Christ. And it is 0% a work of us. Our salvation is not something we can ever earn. It's not something that we can ever win. It's not something that we ever deserve. Salvation is not by works so that no one can boast. And so why does it mean we need to change our life? Surely if we are saved by God and God alone through Jesus Christ, then surely it doesn't really matter the way that we live. Surely we can just do whatever we want and it doesn't change a thing about our salvation. What incentive is there to change if we are completely saved by the grace and grace alone of God our Saviour? Now this was actually one of the great debates of the Reformation between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church. The great Catholic objection to the Reformation teaching of grace alone was that grace couldn't possibly lead to godly living and good works. That unless in some way you had to work and earn your salvation, then there would be no incentive to change whatsoever. But the reformers, they read their Bibles and they said, no, no, that's not actually true. Something about this grace means quite the opposite. This grace means that instead of having no incentive to change, actually we are highly motivated, as verse 12 says, to say no to ungodliness, and to worldly passions. There's something inherent about the truth itself that means that when we understand it, it must change us. And so what is it? Well, have a look at verse 11 very closely, would you? In fact, have a look at one word in particular, and it's the word there, salvation. What does it mean to be saved? You know, what does it mean to be saved at its most basic level, in the way that we might use it in everyday life? Like in a movie or a TV show, for example, what do we mean by saved? Well, to be saved means that we were in a place or a situation of danger and now someone else has come into our life and they have taken us, they have moved us from that place of danger to a place of safety. That's what it means to be saved. We've moved from danger to safety. And that's what salvation means here too when it comes to the gospel. Jesus Christ is our saviour. He is our our mover. Jesus, by his death on the cross, has taken us from the place of danger. The place where we disobeyed God. The place where we were godless. The place where we were rebels against God. Uh, The place of sin. And the place of judgment under the wrath of God. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ who has moved us to the place of safety. The place of forgiveness. The place of fellowship with God once again, a friendship with God, reconciliation with God once again. And that means he's also taken us to the place of obedience, to the place of godly living. I mean, that's what the word saved means. Having been saved, having been taken away from that place of danger, why would we go back? Why would we do, once again, the very things that put us in danger in the first place? Why would we continue to sin? Why would we continue to rebel against our God when that was what meant that we were under his wrath in the first place? And now that we have been shown mercy by our God by sending his very own son for us, why would we not want to go where he leads? Why would we not want to live in that place of safety? Or as verse 14 puts it, why would we not want to be a purified people, eager to do what is good? Now, I was trying to think of a a human example of this to help us really grasp it. And so, you know, let me give you a hypothetical example. What what would happen, do you think, if I, I said to you now that this building is on fire And that we need to leave. Now, by the way, the building is not on fire. You do not need to leave. I say this because once when I used this illustration, I lost the whole back row. And I don't want to do that today. We're all fine. It's okay. But imagine if I did say that. How would I be able to tell whether or not you had heard what I said? And I mean really heard, really understood what I'd said. Well, it wouldn't be if you came up to me and said, oh, that was a lovely sermon, Evan. I really appreciated that. Thank you for for that sermon today, Pastor. That wouldn't be a sign that you'd understood The sign that you'd understood would be when you got up and ran out the door. No, sorry, you don't run out the door, by the way. If we do have an emergency, you get up in an orderly fashion and you do everything the people with the lanyards tell you to do, okay? That's what actually happened. But that's how you would know that someone had understood. That's how you would know that someone would have understood the message that I'd given when they fled from the danger. That's how you know that they really understood. My friends... Our lives were on fire and we were in danger of the fires of hell. We were disobedient, we were wicked, we were rebels and we deserved nothing other than the wrath of God. But by the grace of Jesus Christ, when we put our faith in him, he moves us. He moves us from the danger. He takes us safely to him. And he promises us not just a new life, but a new eternal life with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And so how do I know that you have understood that message? When you flee from sin. When you run from the danger. When you embrace Christ. And out of a new love and a new thankfulness and a new appreciation for him, you embrace all that he teaches. That's how we know that someone has listened and heard and really understood the gospel message of Jesus Christ. When they say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and seek to live a self controlled, upright, and godly life as they wait for Jesus. That's how we know they have understood. And that's why it's really important for us to understand the gospel. To really understand it deep down, right in our hearts. To really understand what he is saying to us. And to really understand what it means for our life. That's why getting our doctrine right, getting our understanding of God's word right is such an important part of our life together. We can't be sloppy. We need to read our Bibles carefully. Again and again and again and for ourselves. It's, it's no use if just the guy up the front understands it. It's no use if your hub leader understands it, but you don't. You need to understand the gospel if you're going to live it out in your life. That's why you need to come to church. That's why you need to come to hub group. That's why you need to read it one-on-one. That's why you need to read it for yourself. That's why there's so many great, wonderful Christian books out there that you can read. There's so many ways. But we need to keep studying God's word so that we can understand the gospel that has saved us. But there is a difference here between the means and the ends because understanding the Bible is never just an intellectual exercise. It's never just an end unto itself. We want to understand, we want to understand so that we can live it out. We want to understand the truth so that we might live as Jesus' people, eager to do what is good. Because the knowledge of the truth does lead to godliness. Because that's what the message is. That's what the truth means. And that's what truly understanding the truth will mean for our lives. It means we will change. But secondly then, knowledge of the truth also leads to godliness. Because not only is it taught to us it's also modelled to us. Come with me to, to verses uh, 1 to 10, uh, would you? Because not only do we, is it communicated to us through words, it's also shown to us it, it, as people live it out in their lives, as they live out the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. It's taught, but it's also caught. Um, and so it, verses 1 to 10 describe for us really a kind of spiritual family where, in particular, the older teaches the younger. Uh, You see it really clearly in verses 3 and 4. Come with me there now. This is talking about older women with younger women, but it's a really clear example to get the kind of principle that we're talking about here. So have a look at verse 3. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good, then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self controlled and pure, etc., etc., etc. You see, see the logic there? Older women, they're instructed to live in a certain way. Uh, here, the, the truth that leads to godliness means a particular thing for that particular group of people. Uh, and now they're to, to teach that and to live that out so that they can help the younger women who are watching, who are listening. They can help the younger women to put the truth of the gospel into practice in their own lives as well. And I think, by the way, that the same principle actually applies with the older and younger men as well in verses 6 to 8. Titus is addressed there and um, Titus is told in verse 7 in particular that he, who is an older man, um, he is to be an example to the younger men of good works and of integrity. You know, I think the same principle is kind of there for the older and the younger men as well. But what this does mean is that we are in the church, we are teachers of each other. Here at Unichurch, we are models of what godliness looks like to each other. Uh, We can learn these things from each other. There is a a web of relationships here at Unichurch through which the gospel works in our lives and brings us to change. Uh, Paul sees the teaching of the truth to each other, particularly older to younger, as kind of almost like good spiritual antibiotics working through the body of Christ, Uh, cleansing it and bringing vitality, uh, killing off infection and rot and uh, promoting what is sound and is healthy. And I think this is a really helpful image for us, a really helpful way of thinking about how our church works as we relate to one another. It's also really helpful because it answers a little bit of an age-old question as to how churches are meant to work. Uh, You know, how should the ministry of a church work? Should it be be very organised or should it be very organic? Uh, you know, uh, most churches will sort of see themselves as somewhere on the continuum between those two things. Uh, some churches are very organised, you know, lots of uh, structure, you know, leaders, uh, the people, um, uh, you know, nothing really happens unless the authorised person is the one to kind of make it all happen or decide that it happens. And then on the other hand, there are other churches that are very organic. Uh, lots of things happen. It's very unstructured. Things just occur. Uh, and actually, sometimes the official things can be seen as even a little bit inauthentic. And I've been in churches and served in churches that are all the way across that kind of continuum. But I think that what the Apostle Paul would say is that a healthy church actually has both at the same time. That they are both organised and organic. You know, uh, here at our church, we have leaders, we have pastors, we have programs, we have all sorts of things that go on. But that isn't all the ministry that happens in our church. In fact, I suspect that they are nothing more than the tip of what is an enormous iceberg, most of which cannot be seen. Most of the ministry of our church is actually, it's unseen. You know, it happens as you talk to each other over supper. It happens as you, you, know, you send a text to someone because you know they're having a hard time. It, it happens as you, you know, catch up with someone and have a coffee or whatever with them just to, to kind of see how they're going. It, it happens as you pray for each other prayer is the great unseen ministry we don't see it but God sees it and he hears it and he answers it now you see most of the ministry of our church is unseen as we teach as we model as we care as we love as we encourage each other and I regularly give thanks to God for all of the unseen ministry of our church I do not see it but God does And so every single one of us ought to consider how can I encourage godliness? How can I model to others what the truth that leads to godliness looks like? Everyone here has a role to play. And some of you might think, oh, I don't know, I'm not sure that I have much to offer. What could anyone learn from me? And Titus 2 says lots. Titus 2 says that actually... Each one of us have different experiences of applying this truth that leads to godliness in the different situations of life that can be of immense help to others, in particular to those who are younger than you. You know, there's, there's high school students in this room. Lots of you have finished high school. You've got lots to share with them about how to live, how to be godly, how to, to, to be a Christian at school. Lots of you are uni students. Well, there's others here. Well, they've they've finally graduated from university. They have lots to offer you about how to live as a Christian at, at university, how to make the most of the time, how to be an evangelist with friends on campus. Some of you have just started working, just started in your jobs for the first time. Well, there's others here who've been working for a long time, some of them for a really long time. They've got lots to teach you and show you about what it means to be a Christian in the workplace and how to... You see all sorts of different situations? There's unmarried and married. There's those who've been single and even those who've been single for a long time. We've all got all sorts of things that we have to teach one another. We've all got something to offer. And it's not our perfection. In fact, often what we have to share with one another are our failures and the things that we wished we'd done, or the the hard lessons we've learned. But they're useful too. It's not our perfection that we share. it is Instead, it is our progress. Our struggles, our experience of putting the truth of the gospel into practice in our lives, that's what we have to model and to share with each other. And that is what is a great encouragement and of great benefit to all of us. Now, as to the godliness that is particularly mentioned by um, Paul and and, and particularly talks about here in chapter 2, there's lots we could say. In fact, uh, we could very easily have a second whole sermon on the the different things uh, that Paul talks about here. But I would say that there is one thing that really stood out to me as I read it. And that was how often self-control is mentioned. It's mentioned again and again and again. It's mentioned to the older women No, sorry, it's not mentioned to the older women. I'll get to that in a moment. It's mentioned to the younger women. It's mentioned to the older men. It's the only thing that's mentioned to the younger men. I think Paul assumes that the younger men, that's all they can really cope with. He gives them one instruction, be self-controlled, because that's how important it is to be self-controlled as a young man. And as I said, the only group of people that seem to get out of this are the older women. And so whoever the older women are, and I'm not even going to look at anyone as I say this, I'm just going to look at these nice stained glass windows. Whoever the older women are, uh, they're off the hook. Although, when you read what the older women are to do, I think that too would take quite a bit of self-control. And so do, you know, do come and ask me about self-control afterwards. I'd love to talk about it. I'm looking for a chance to slip it into the, the sermon program later this year and have a whole sermon talking about the topic of self-control. But today we are just focusing on the process a little bit. And so before I I kind of finish up, I do want to say that all of this does go a long way to explaining why Unichurch is the way that Unichurch is. Why so much of our time, so much of the emphasis of our life together is spent on teaching, on sitting and and listening to sermons, on hearing God's word. It's why there is such an emphasis on, on opening God's word in our hub groups. It's why that's such a critical and important part of our life together but it's also why spending time together is also a critical part of our time together. Uh, spending time learning from each other in this community that we call church and just kind of being together is a really important part of our life. And so I do want to say to you, yes, you know, I I want you to come to church. You know, I want you to be here on Sunday nights. I want you to to listen to sermons and sing the songs. I want you to participate in our, our gatherings together in every way. But actually, if that is all your experience of church is, if all your experience of church is just sitting in this room on a Sunday night, then I want to say that you're missing out. I want to say that your experience of church is impoverished. If you're not sticking around and having supper afterwards and talking with each other, if you're not uh, coming to dinner after church, if you're not hanging out with each other during the week, catching up with each other to encourage one another, if you're not part of a hub group, or uh, if you're not taking, if you're not kind of really throwing yourself into the community of Unichurch here, then you're not getting the full experience. You aren't getting the very thing that Paul is describing here in Titus 2. And not only are you impoverishing your own godliness, you're also impoverishing the godliness of the whole church because the truth leads to godliness as it is taught but also as it's modelled to us by each other. But let's finish up. You've done well. It's been a hot day, hasn't it? But let me finish very quickly with just one last point because there is another reason, a third reason, why the truth leads to godliness And that's because of what godliness achieves. Have a look, would you, at the very end of verse 5 and verse 8 and verse 10, uh, which all are a little bit similar. You know, uh, verse 5, so that no one will malign the word of God. Or verse 8, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And verse 10, so that in every way they may make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. You see, there is a beauty when we demonstrate the godliness that the truth about Jesus leads to. When it can be seen in our lives, when it can be seen in our church, Godly living adorns the gospel because godly living flows from the gospel. And we live in a world where the gospel of Jesus Christ is maligned, where it is condemned, where it is unattractive. We live in a world where those who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ are made to feel ashamed. That's what they want us to be. They want us to feel ashamed of the gospel. The gospel in our world today is, by so many people, it's not quaint, it's not old-fashioned, it's not neutral. It's increasingly being seen as harmful and even an active evil that needs to be suppressed. And attempts to suppress the gospel, even in our country, they are coming and in many subtle ways they are already here. And in that kind of world in which we find ourselves... What has God given us to make the teaching of our God and Saviour attractive? He has given us the godliness that flows naturally out of the gospel. He's given us this kind of life. A life lived where we show the world what the gospel means, even in our lives. Now, don't mistake me for saying that This is somehow saying that we can just kind of live a godly life, never say a word, and somehow people around us will magically come to Christ. Uh, This is not that terrible quote that's so often misattributed to Francis of Assisi. You know, you've heard it before, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. No, if you're going to preach the gospel, you will always need to use words. That's how the gospel has come to us. That's how the gospel always comes. But how do we show the world that they are wrong? About Jesus. How do we show the world that we have nothing to be ashamed of. When we follow Jesus. Well it's as we preach. But it's also as we show them what a gospel shaped life looks like. It's as we practice what we preach. That's how we can make. A teaching about our God and Savior. Attractive to our world's. Attractive to the so many people in our own lives that we desperately long for that they would know Jesus and be saved, be moved by him. And so my friends, let grace be your teacher. And may the truth about Jesus lead to godliness in our lives and in the life of our church. Let's pray. gracious heavenly father your grace lord that offers salvation to all people has appeared to us what an enormous privilege that is lord what enormous privilege it is to know that by your son we have been saved we have been moved moved from the place of danger moved from the place where we were under your wrath and your judgment For our rebellion and disobedience. And move to the place of safety. Move to the place where we have friendship with you. And even the promise of eternal life. And therefore God we ask you. Help us to say no to sin. No to ungodliness. No to all worldly passions and lusts. Help us, Lord, to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives as we wait for Jesus, our Saviour, to return. And help us now, Lord, to live as a purified people, a people who belong to Jesus, eager to do what is good, Lord, eager to encourage one another, eager to serve one another, eager to teach one another, eager to model godliness to each other, and eager to learn from one another eager in every way to adorn the teaching of our God and Saviour with the godliness that comes from your gospel. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.